You're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review for Thursday, April 29th, 2021. I'm Coda Babcock. And I'm Ivy Winfrey. And you're tuned in to KCSU Fort Collins. On today's show, Ellie Shannon explains updates in campus news. And I tell you about Poudre School District's plans to return next semester. After that, Dixon Lawson updates us on CSU's athletics, and then you'll be hearing a conversation between Dr. Regina Miranda and myself about mental health issues facing youth, specifically middle school age students. Then Coda explains Joe Biden's American Family Plan, and we tune in to T. Storup's episode of Takes from the Anthropocene discussing ocean pollution. After that, I give new information on COVID-19 statistics. To conclude the show, Koda explains concerns over fully automated vehicles, and I talk about how a Russian man was held captive on a Chinese reality TV show by his contract. Let's move right into campus and local news. Hello, everyone. We are still in week 15 of this spring semester. I hope everyone will be able to get out and enjoy the weather this weekend with possible highs of 80 on Saturday. Colorado State University's College of Liberal Arts received a grant of over $300,000 from PetSmart Charities to conquer a multi-year interdisciplinary study focusing on the linguistic and cultural barriers between veterinary professionals and Spanish-speaking companion animal owners, according to Cyrus Martin of CSU's College News. With an estimated 52 million Spanish speakers, The U.S. now has the largest population of Spanish-speaking residents of any nation where Spanish is not the majority language, which is why this study needs to be conducted. Shannon Zeller, a Spanish instructor and curriculum developer in the Department of Languages, Literatures, and Cultures, is currently leading the study as its principal investigator in partnership with co-PI Dr. Danielle Frey. Director of Veterinary International and Outreach Student Experiences in the College of Veterinary Medicine and Biomedical Sciences. Veterinary students are preparing for the future as well, especially through Zeller and Frey's educational programs, which they hope to expand to help future veterinarians learn Spanish. To learn more about PetSmart Charities, visit www.petsmartcharities.org. The National Academy of Sciences, a nonprofit society of distinguished scholars, represents the nation's most active contributors to the international scientific community. This year, two CSU faculty members, Jan Leach and Robin Reed, are among 120 newly elected members into the Academy. Leach holds many titles, including Research Dean for the College of Agricultural Sciences, and is an international authority on how to stabilize disease resistance and reduce crop loss. Reed, a professor in the Department of Ecosystem Science and Sustainability in CSU's Warner College of Natural Resources, focuses her research on engaging cross-disciplinary teams working on linked social ecological systems. According to Anne Manning of CSU's College News, Reed describes her life's work as using science as a catalyst for social change that promotes sustainability. Saliva tests are still available at Moby Arena parking lot, Mac Gym in the Recreation Center, and the Veterinary Teaching Hospital on South Campus. Register and schedule a time on Ram Web to get one. President Joyce McConnell also sent out an email Wednesday night announcing that CSU will require all student staff and faculty to get the COVID vaccine before the 2021 fall semester. More updates on this process will be announced closer to the fall. 
Make sure to tune in to the Rocky Mountain Review Tuesdays and Thursdays, and always make sure to tune in to KCSU. I'm Ellie Shannon, and you're listening to 90.5 FM. Hello, my name is Ivy Winfrey, and you're listening to 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. This is your local news for today. Poudre School District has announced its plans to go fully in-person by the fall. According to Molly Bohannon at the Coloradoan, the district announced at its Tuesday night's Board of Education meeting that it plans for K-12 students to be in person five days a week and preschoolers to be in person four days a week starting at the beginning of fall semester. Assistant Superintendent for Elementary Schools Tracy Guile says that, quote, We're looking forward to opening the school year with in-person learning. We've seen at firsthand the benefits of students, teachers, and staff being back together in school, and we believe that is what is best for kids, end quote. Gael says that Larimer County Public Health Director Tom Gonzalez continues to support in-person learning because of his existing health protocols that are in place at schools. As of now, masks will still be required, but Gael says the district anticipates and hopes protocols may change. It is possible that PSD and the County Health Department could continue contact tracing in the 2021-2022 school year, meaning classes would still shift to remote education, according to the district. Students who want to remain in a virtual or hybrid setting will have that option through the Pooter Global Academy, which will replace PSD Virtual as a district's 100% virtual option and continue to offer a hybrid curriculum. Assistant Superintendent for Secondary Schools Scott Nielsen says the district is hopeful that the extracurriculars and athletic activities will continue to be phased back in for the coming year. City of Fort Collins swore in the new mayor and three new council members yesterday. The city also named the new mayor pro tempore. According to J.C. Marmaduke at the Coloradoan, J- Mayor Jenny Ardent and additionally council members Trisha Canonico, Kelly Olson, and Shirley Peel were sworn in Tuesday night at city council's first in-person meeting in months. Councilmember Susan Gutowski was also sworn in for her second term. Shortly after, the new council unanimously named Emily Gorgol as Mayor Pro Tem. The Mayor Pro Tem attends weekly leadership meetings with the mayor and staff leaders and runs council meetings in the mayor's absence. The city also said farewell to former Mayor Wade Troxell, Mayor Pro Tem Ross Cuniff, and council members Ken Summers and Melanie Potiondi. The new council adopted resolutions and accepted public comment thanking each of them for their service to the community. The departing council members also shared brief remarks. The new council boasts a female majority of historic significance, with six women and one man. It is the most significant female majority governing body of any Colorado municipality. Arden says that she hopes the new council will, quote, honor the service of our predecessors while also looking forward and, quote, thinking creatively beyond either-or, win-lose positions, and continue creating community that's for everyone, end quote. The support for Gorgol as Mayor Pro Tem was swift and unanimous. She was the council's sole nominee, and a community member who commented in her support praised her for her energy and endurance, dedication to the community, and being an anchor for our community through the pandemic. The new council will have its first regular meeting on May 4th, when it's set to vote on the Hughes Stadium rezoning approved by voters in April. It is likely that the council will hold its regular meetings in person from now on, with participation available remotely or in person. Masks are required in council chambers, and physical distancing is enforced, though council members may remove their masks when they're seated for the meeting. 
COVID-19 cases are increasing rapidly among Colorado's children, according to state epidemiologists. According to Aaron Udell of the Coloradoan, state epidemiologist Dr. Rachel Hurley said that the steepest incline in reported COVID-19 cases has been among the 11 to 17 age group, exceeding uh, those among people 18 and older in the state's 14-day case rate data during a state news conference concerning the pandemic held on Tuesday. Cases among children 3 to 10 years old rose, but never exceeded the rising case rate among adults, Hurley, he says. Across Colorado, the 0 to 19 age group made up just more than 26% of weekly COVID-19 cases as of last week, according to the state health department data. It's the second largest age group for COVID-19 cases in the state, behind 20 to 39 year olds, who make up nearly 40% of weekly cases. Children and teens remain the least hospitalized group in Colorado, with nearly 5% of hospitalized COVID-19 patients being 19 or younger as of last week. Throughout the pandemic, children 0 to 9 years old have made up about 1% of hospitalized COVID-19 patients, and those 10 to 19 years old have made up about 2%, according to state health department data. Colorado Governor Jared Polis assured viewers of Tuesday's live-streamed COVID-19 update that schools are a, quote, relatively safe place, end quote, during the pandemic, and he's confident Colorado schools will finish this school year successfully under the state's current pandemic protocols. Polis largely attributes the increase among children to vaccinated parents and their grandparents starting to go out to restaurants and more social situations with their unvaccinated children or grandchildren in tow. The state hopes a COVID-19 vaccine will get Emergency Food and Drug Administration approval for children 12 to 15 years old in the next couple of months, giving eligible children enough time to receive two vaccine doses before the start of the next school year, Polis added. That's all the news I have for today. My name is Abby Winfrey, and you're listening to 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. This is the Rocky Mountain Review. Unfortunately, Dixon Lawson is unable to make it, but Jonathan Gillum is filling in. Good afternoon, KCSU listeners. It's Jonathan Gillum for KCSU Sports. And we only have a couple more weeks left in the semester, but we still have sports coming on. Starting with tomorrow. Track and field goes to Lawrence, Kansas to have a little rock chalk classic. Men's golf goes to the Mountain West Championship located in Tucson, Arizona for their first day. Track and Field also is doing the West Coast Relays at Clovis, California. On Saturday, 
Men's golf continues their Mountain West Championship in Arizona for day two. Track and field continues their Rock Chalk Classic in Kansas. Softball faces Boise State for two games, one at 12 p.m. and one at 2.30. And then on Sunday, softball has their third game in their series at 11 a.m. on Sunday. Once again, that is the sports update for the week. Tonight, the NFL Draft is happening. Please check your local listings to find out what time and how to find it. I'm excited to see what your local Denver Broncos are going to draft. It's going to be an exciting time. I hope everyone has a fantastic weekend for KCSU Sports. I'm Jonathan Gillum. I'll catch you next time. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Regina Miranda, a professor of psychology at Hunter College, to talk about recent statistics on middle school students and their mental health since the start of the pandemic. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. I'm pleased to be here. Yeah. And then to start off, can you tell us a little bit about what the statistics show relating to the mental health of middle age, middle school age students? Sure. We know that for uh, decades, we've seen increases in mental health problems among middle schoolers and uh, young, uh, adolescents, youth in the United States, um, and including increases in suicidal behavior and, and suicide deaths. And it, that's been recently particularly concerning among black youth and actually black preteens who have shown um, substantial increases in suicide rates. We also know that mental health problems uh, tend to arise during this period of life, during, during the middle school years, so in the transition from middle school to high school years. Uh, and so um, uh, depression, anxiety, stress-related problems, along with suicidal behavior have been problems of increasing public health concern in the United States, but tend to be under-addressed, specifically in communities of color who tend to have lower access to mental health care and treatment and tend to be underrepresented in studies of mental health. And so with regard to the pandemic, we actually, we don't have complete data. Um, we have some data suggesting increases in visits to the emergency department for anxiety and other concerns, including suicidal behavior during the pandemic. But at the same time, we have to keep in mind that other avenues that people would uh, seek out for mental health were closed uh, and, and have been have just been reopening during the pandemic. So we have to weigh those statistics with um, keeping those things in mind. However, what we do know that even though suicide rates actually decreased overall in the United States in 20, 2019 and 2020, so this is the first, these are the first decreases that we've actually seen that may not be the case for communities of color. So we have data coming out from specific states suggesting that um, these communities that especially specifically black and Hispanic communities that have been most impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic also may be showing increases in uh, not only mental health problems, but suicidal behavior. And so that's one of the reasons that this campaign founded out seeks to um, focus on the experiences of black and Hispanic or Latinx youth um, to help uh, providers and caregivers, parents, be able to start conversations early with their teens about their emotional well-being. Definitely. And then just out of curiosity, how do you think ER visits can show the severity of a health problem, especially since a lot of ERs don't require health insurance? 
um, it, how they can show the severity of a mental health problem and in, in what sense? Um, so just in general, like how severe mental health shifts are, specifically suicidality. Ah, uh, so... Yeah, so it's possible that, um, you know, some uh, people who don't have um, health insurance are more likely to visit uh, e emergency rooms um, when they have uh, both physical and mental health problems. Um, uh, teens who um, engage in suicidal behavior, who make suicide attempts or who express suicidal thoughts um, will also often go to the emergency uh, department Partly because, not only because of um, health insurance reasons, but also because clinicians might refer um, teens to the emergency department, schools might also refer. So it was interesting to think through what might happen as a result of the pandemic, because we um, would normally have certain gatekeepers who would be able to identify if a teen might be distressed or might need to be evaluated. And those gatekeepers, we, uh, we didn't have as much access to them because kids were doing school remotely um, and schools were closed. And so um, now it was more up to parents, been up to parents to really be able to identify whether their teens are in distress. And so incomes campaigns like Sounded Out to try to um, help start those conversations, which can be difficult. Yeah, definitely. And then kind of relating back to how COVID-19 may have impacted the, these issues specifically, how do you think this has increased kind of parents' concerns about it as they're not longer having their students go to counselors at school? They're no longer getting consistent access to a lot of therapists? Well, parents have uh, had increased strains themselves. And so um, we're seeing increased uh, strains on caregivers. And so um, at the same time, parents are concerned about what the social isolation or the potentially loneliness due to not being able to see peers um, and how that might impact uh, their kids' mental health. Kids are surprisingly resilient. And so while these stressors um, do increase risk, um, we should keep in mind that there's also a level of resilience that can be modeled at home. And so kids will uh, respond depending on how their families are responding to the pandemic. And so trying to foster these conversations about emotional well-being is one way of um, helping kids to develop coping skills and increasing their resilience in the face of stressors. So yes, while we are seeing um, increased mental health problems, uh, we should also keep in mind that kids are resilient. However, um, there are some communities that experience additional stressors, such as the stress of systemic racism, um, so, you know, there's been a lot of national attention and national unrest around um, relationships between communities of color and the police. And so seeing oneself um, uh, or seeing members of one's community being victims of violence and being victims of systemic racism, I think adds additional stress and trauma that might also impact. It's something that we don't talk about as much in tandem with talking about the pandemic. There is the tangible, there are the tangible effects of the COVID-19 pandemic, particularly on Black and Hispanic communities, uh, but there's also the added stress and potential trauma of issues surrounding systemic racism and constantly being, um, um, you know, bombarded with these images of, uh, of violence against communities of color. Definitely. And then a lot of families 
from all different communities avoid talking about mental health often as they see it as a private issue. So why is it so important that family members of these young students and young people are making sure to talk about mental health? Well, our emotions and emotional well-being impact every aspect of our lives, from our work lives to our school lives to our social relationships so, and our physical health. So there's a direct connection between how we feel and how we cope with our feelings and how, and, and how our bodies are functioning physically. Um, and so oftentimes we look at mental health as something secondary to address after we address all the other things we have to address, including our physical health. But in fact, uh, mental health encompasses everything and is related to everything that we do. And so our, our emotions and how we deal with our emotions affect all aspects of our lives. And that's why it's important to start talking about our feelings and normalize talking about our thoughts and feelings early on, such as in the middle school years or even earlier. And so I think caregivers can serve as models of how to do that. And just taking it back to this campaign for a minute, Sound It Out is a national campaign that seeks to use the power of music to help caregivers have those conversations with their middle schoolers and um, does so by trying to uh, uh, use music as a way to articulate the experiences that um, teens might have, but may not be able to articulate themselves. So sometimes when you can't find the words, um, sometimes the lyrics of a song may help you express something that you didn't quite know how to express, or maybe you, you, were, having a, you were having a feeling or feeling going through an experience and um, you couldn't articulate it yourself, but you might look to a song to be able to express that. So via this campaign, which can be found on standitouttogether.org. And there's also a Spanish uh, language website. Um, this is one place that caregivers can find not only the music and listen to the music and have conversations with their teens, information about emotional well-being, uh, resources, um, and also uh, guides or suggestions about how to start these conversations with young people. Definitely. And then how can parents also use the Sounded Out campaign if they're at all overwhelmed by their children's mental health situations? So it's important to start the converse, start step by step. One of the songs um, uh, uh, talks about how um, you, know, you take one breath at a time. And so change and talking about these issues, it's really one step at a time. So we don't necessarily want to tackle the big problem head on right away, we start in small steps. And so if parents aren't used to having conversations with their kids about the big stuff, then they can start by having conversations with their kids about the little things. And so um, going to this website, listening to the music, there are games that parents and kids can play with each other where they write out, write lyrics to, to the songs that are provided or music that's provided. Um, and just starting to have these conversations about their reactions to these songs, whether they've had experiences like the, like these, whether this resonates with them, whether these are ways that, um, you know, that are helpful for them to deal with emotions and experiences or stressors that they've encountered. So just starting small, step by step, um, and then opening up those avenues of communication and keeping them open so that when the, you have to have conversations about the bigger things that you've already started with the smaller things. And then how can family members who notice that their children are experiencing a lot of trauma due to continued racism and other issues really make sure that those children are helping their own mental health and taking care of themselves? So I think it's important to both be aware of what's happening, um, but also 
to find ways to disengage from the 24 hour news cycle and to, because watching those images over and over again, or hearing about living in communities where you, you know people um, who've had those experiences um, is overwhelming and, and can increase stress. And so finding ways to stay in the moment and disengage from what's happening uh, externally and really um, uh, find ways to take care of themselves and find moments of joy or, or be, just being present. And, and even in having a conversation with a parent. So parents themselves are wondering, you know, what, what, um, you know how am I gonna instill a sense of um, enthusiasm and um, ha hope in my kids in the midst of all of this trauma that they are seeing? Um, and how do I help them have hope for their futures? And I think part of it starts with these one-on-one -on -one conversations um, with each other and um, modeling for kids um, the ability to uh, express what they're thinking and feeling and ways of coping with their, with their stressors and, and anxieties. And so start being present, starting small, and also maybe finding ways to be part of the solution or, where, or, or learning how to have small bits of influence within your sphere of influence. Because sometimes we see these big problems and we think there's, you feel helpless because there, there might be nothing that you feel that you can do, but you can start by having an impact within your immediate circle. And, and for parents that starts but with their kids or, or caregivers that starts with their, with their children. You can have an immediate impact via these ongoing conversations. Definitely. And then how do you think older siblings and cousins might be able to support these students in struggling with their mental health and a parents, in a way parents might not be able to, especially since a lot of our listening audience is college students and they might have younger siblings and cousins that they're really concerned about and just not know how to reach out. Well, we know that uh, having, there's some research suggesting that having a caring adult in your life can help improve your mental health and, and for kids who are at risk for suicidal behavior, reduce risk of engaging in suicidal behavior. So yes, this is, I think, a resource that other adults in the lives of their cousins and siblings can use to help have those conversations too, because even if um, it's possible that caregivers will start these conversations with their kids, but those conversations won't necessarily, or model the conversations, but they won't actually happen with their parents, but maybe it'll happen with, with another adult in the, um, in the teen's life uh, with whom they might feel more comfortable sharing how they're feeling. Definitely. And then can you just tell us a little bit more about the Sounded Out campaign, just as a reminder in case anyone's just tuning in now? So this is a campaign. It's a really cool campaign that paired musical artists with teenagers and their caregivers and brought them together to have conversations about their emotional well-being, their functioning, their experiences. And so the artists used those conversations to inspire original songs that they wrote that are now part of this campaign, sounditouttogether.org, uh, that teens and caregivers can go to to listen to the music, to uh, view the videos and behind the scenes footage and public service announcements, which I think are being launched over the course of the year. Um, and to find resources to continue having these conversations. All right, and then do you have anything else you'd like to add before we go? Um, no, I think uh, we've covered everything. Uh, right. Thank you so much for this opportunity. This is a great exciting campaign and I hope that you have an opportunity to go to the website and listen to the songs and watch the videos and look at the resources. 
All right. Again, that was Dr. Regina Miranda from Hunter College, and we discussed surges in mental health-related ER visits in middle school-age students and how family members can support students in this age group as they struggle with their mental health. We'll be right back with national news, but again, that website was sounditouttogether.org. And we are back on the Rocky Mountain Review. I'm Coda Babcock, and you just heard from Dr. Regina Miranda from the Sounded Out Campaign and Hunter College's Psychology Department. Now for Thursday's national news highlights on the Rocky Mountain Review. Michael Collins, who is the third member of the Apollo 11 flight to the moon, died at 90 years old. According to Russell Lewis from National Public Radio, Collins piloted the command module while, while Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin took their first steps on the moon. Collins is also referred to as the forgotten astronaut due to his importance in the mission and lack of notoriety. Collins fought with cancer in his final moments, and according to a statement from family, his final days were peaceful and he was surrounded by family. While Aldrin and Armstrong walked on the moon, Collins orbited 60 miles above, listening in to communications. When on the backside of the moon, communications cut off completely. Francis French, who works for the San Diego Air and Space Museum, said to NPR that, quote, in many ways, he was the keystone of the mission. He was the one who really knew how to fly the spacecraft solo, and the only one who could get all three of them home, end quote. Disputes over a crude oil pipeline threatened to strain ties between the U.S. and Canada. According to John Flesher and Matthew Brown of the Associated Press, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer ordered Enbridge to shut down their Line 5, which delivers oil from Alberta to the Midwestern U.S. and Eastern Canada. Enbridge is a Canadian energy company, and the line being closed had potential to spill into two Great Lakes, which AP says would devastate those ecosystems. Whitmer made a deadline of May 12th for the line's shutdown, which is just two weeks away. Canadian officials and Enbridge are contesting the order and refusing to comply, claiming that Whitmer doesn't hold the authority to remove that line. The pipeline is 68 years old, and Enbridge says its operations remain safe. Canada's Minister of Natural Resources, Seamus O'Regan, said in an email to the Associated Press that, quote, It is a vital part of Canadian energy security, and I have been very clear that its continued operation is non-negotiable, end quote. Biden announced details for the American Families Plan Wednesday. The plan involves $1.8 trillion in spending increases and tax cuts aimed to support American families, and it would be paid for using new taxes on high-income Americans. According to Jim Tankersley and Dana Goldstein at the New York Times, the plan specifically supports women in the workforce, affordable childcare, and expanding access to education. The American Families Plan cost, when combined with Biden's infrastructure plan, brings the cost of these economic proposals to over $4 trillion. 
The proposal includes universal pre-K, federal paid leave, free community college for all, and new financial aid opportunities at at historically non-white colleges and universities. Additionally, this includes subsidies under the Affordable Care Act and new supports to fight poverty. Members of the Biden administration see the plan as an economic support that would make attaining a middle-class lifestyle accessible for more Americans. And they also believe that this will bridge racial and gender-based economic opportunity gaps. That's all for Thursday's National News Highlights. I'm Coda Babcock, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review. Now you're going to hear Ty Strope from the Anthropology 405 podcast, Takes from the Anthropocene, discuss ocean pollution from chemicals and solution to save the reefs. Are you a risk taker? Do you enjoy living life on the edge? If I were to ask you the same question in a couple decades, it could mean something entirely different than it does today. I'm not talking about skydiving or free climbing. I'm talking about something as simple as swimming in the ocean or eating a piece of fish. With the pollution of our oceans growing worse each day, these tasks could be risky in the future and lead to serious health problems, unless something is done to reverse the way we utilize chemicals. Hello, my name is T. Stroop, and I'm a senior at CSU majoring in cultural anthropology. I'm here today to discuss the issue of ocean pollution due to pesticides and other harmful man-made chemicals. Hi, T. I have a few questions for you about this topic, and I wanted to start off by asking, how do pesticides that are sprayed on land get into water supply? That's a great question. A lot of scientists have spent years researching and pinpointing the ways that these chemicals contaminate our oceans, and they've discovered that the main cause of pollution is the runoff from crop fields that have been sprayed with these pesticides. This runoff can easily find its way into streams and rivers, which eventually lead to the ocean. Runoff doesn't only negatively affect the ocean. It also gets into our drinking water and the water we use to shower with, wash our dishes and clothes with, and water our lawns. These chemicals have methods of finding their way back to humans, even though we intend to use them to kill unwanted pests. Why do you think governments around the world are still allowing these chemicals to be used? I think a lot of governments are looking for a cheaper option for pest control. These pests cause destruction of crops and less food to harvest, causing companies to lose money and causing the price of produce to increase. Organic or natural pest control is expensive and not as effective, so only a limited number of people can afford this option. Unfortunately, certain governments such as Australia still allow more harmful pesticides to be used, even though most other countries have banned them. This is problematic because once the chemicals are in the ocean, they can spread to other regions and marine life, ultimately impacting other countries, even if those countries have banned the use of these chemicals. The U.S. has the second highest pesticide use in the world behind China at over 407,000 tons per year. So we're still using a lot of pesticides, even if they are supposedly the less harmful ones. The use of these pesticides can be tied back to the growth machine, which basically promotes the need to grow at all costs, even if this growth harms the environment for future generations. As long as profits can be made for their use, pesticides will continue to be part of the agricultural industry. How is the Great Barrier Reef being impacted by pesticides and other man-made chemicals? I was actually fortunate enough to be able to visit the Great Barrier Reef a couple years ago and witness firsthand the damage from pollution and climate change. I noticed that the corals are being bleached and they're slowly dying off, which has led to a lot of other species dying or becoming endangered in the area. An article by The Guardian discussed how harmful pesticides are found in the Barrier Reef, including atrazine, which is a herbicide that's been banned in 60 countries. It also talked about the fact that more than 80 of the active ingredients registered for use in Australia are actually prohibited by 27 members of the European Union. The study says that this includes 17 pesticides that are known to be 
or likely probable to be carcinogens and 48 pesticides flagged as potential endocrine disruptors. And then as well, more than 20% of these ingredients are classified as either extremely or highly hazardous by the World Health Organization. Three of the pesticides are subject to actions by international conventions, but are still used in Australia. Again, this could be because they are only concerned with making crop production cheaper for their consumers and lowering the price of produce. This is also linked to the fact that the Australian regulatory system is under the umbrella of the Department of Agriculture, so their priority is to control pests and they aren't as focused on the protection of the environment as another department would be. There's also an interesting quote by Rachel Carson that reads, how could intelligent beings seek to control a few unwanted species by a method that contaminated the entire environment and brought the threat of disease and death even to their own kind? I think this really speaks to the agricultural industry today and foreshadows what could be our future if we continue down this road. What will it mean for human and aquatic populations if the Great Barrier Reef and other reefs around the world are destroyed due to pollution? I think reefs are a good indicator for how well coastal communities are doing. If the reef is healthy, then chances are good that the community will reflect that. But if the reef is unhealthy, then there is probably other issues that have impacted the community as well. They may only cover 1% of the Earth's surface, but reefs provide food protection and jobs to many people and are essential parts of coastal communities. If the Great Barrier Reef were to be destroyed, the tourism and fishing industry in Sydney would collapse, and this would lead to a huge economic collapse as well in the area. Reefs provide a buffer against storms and flooding, and this can lead to more economic losses if the reefs are lost in this area. It can also lead to displacement for locals. Coral reefs are also major contributors to medical studies and have been known to contain cures to diseases that cannot be found elsewhere, including cancer and other heart diseases. Do you think that the damage done to the environment by pesticides is reversible? And if so, how? I think a lot of damage has been done, but I think an important part of making positive changes is in the way that we frame the issue. Philosopher George Lakoff discusses the power that framing has in relation to the environment, and I believe if his techniques were utilized, the public could be presented with a new way to view pesticide use. Instead of framing the use of all pesticides as necessary for the production of produce, I think only certain pesticides should be promoted in a positive way. Education is also key to changing regulations, and I believe the public needs to know more about what they are consuming. I also think increased production of organic produce could I also think increased production of organic produce could increase in popularity after more people become aware of the harmful effects of pesticides. I think there will always be a need for pesticides and that pesticide containment in the ocean will always exist, but I believe it can be greatly reduced so that it has little to no impact on marine life. The world's oceans are becoming more and more polluted by the day, and without a major change in the way that pesticides and other chemical pollutants are managed, many of the existing marine populations are going to face new challenges to their survival. In order to stop this destruction, pollution and climate change must be combated with new laws and regulations across the globe. So you talked about the Barrier Reef and yeah. that you actually went yeah, there. Yeah, for sure. So how was that and where was that exactly? Yeah, so the Great Barrier Reef is actually located in Sydney, Australia. And basically I went and scuba dived through the corals there. And yeah, it, it was really awesome. But it turns out that a lot of the corals, because of ocean warming and stuff, are being bleached and like pretty much dying from from the contamination that our world has you know, put upon them. It was really sad to see because a lot of those communities, even like the human populations around there, 
rely on these corals basically for food and um, shelter. And if we lose those fish populations, then our community will suffer as well. So it's just really sad to see. I agree. So with that and like the bleaching of the corals and stuff, do you believe like after that, like the damage is done or do you think there is a way for that specifically to be undone? Yeah, I think a lot of the corals actually are irreversible at this point, unfortunately. But there are a lot of organizations that have started like replanting new corals and stuff. The corals are usually over 100 years old. So they're like really old beings. But yeah, organizations have tried to, you know, make new coral reefs that are hopefully going to grow into larger structures so that the fish around can have a new shelter to live in. But I guess only time will tell if that will actually work out. Yeah, of course. I'm Koda Babcock, and these are COVID-19 updates for Thursday. Colorado State University reports a cumulative total of over 3,200 cases of COVID-19 since May 2020. Recent spikes continue to go down as students remain online and vaccines circulate through the community. Larimer County reports over 25,000 COVID-19 cases and 238 deaths. The county reports a medium risk score for COVID-19, and on the county's dial, guidance says that residents should be cautious of COVID-19 risk. Just under 500 outbreaks are reported, and over 280,000 vaccines have been distributed in Larimer County, which has a seven-day case rate of 148 per 100,000 residents. In the past week, 5.7% of COVID tests have come back positive, and 44 COVID patients received treatment in area hospitals. ICU utilization is at 88%. The state of Colorado reports 506,000 cases of COVID-19 and over 6,400 deaths due to COVID-19. Around 2.9 million people have been tested for COVID-19 and over 4,800 outbreaks are reported in the state. 4.3 million doses of the COVID-19 vaccine have been distributed in the state, with 31% of Coloradans being fully vaccinated as of Wednesday. Nationally, there are 32.2 million cases of COVID-19 and nearly 574,000 deaths. Wednesday, 52,000 more cases of COVID-19 were reported, along with 712 deaths. In the past two weeks, cases decreased by 26% and deaths decreased by 7%. 30% of the U.S. population is fully vaccinated, and 43% received at least one dose of the vaccine. The best methods in COVID-19 prevention for those not currently immune to the virus through vaccination include washing your hands regularly, using hand sanitizer, wearing face masks or cloth face coverings, and keeping social distance from others outside your household. KCSU reminds listeners that face masks are required in public regardless of vaccination status, and vaccinated individuals may still be asymptomatic carriers of COVID-19. Information from this segment comes from CSU's COVID site, Larimer County, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, the Centers for Disease Control, and the New York Times. I'm Cutta Babcock, and you're listening to KCSU Fort Collins on 90.5 FM. We'll be right back with tech news, and stay tuned because in five minutes, you'll be hearing weird news with Ivy Winfrey. 
And we are back on the Rocky Mountain Review. I'm Coda Babcock, and this is Tech News Highlights for Thursday. You just heard Ty Stroop discuss ocean pollution and potential solutions. The District of Columbia's police department was allegedly targeted for a ransomware attack. According to Jacqueline Diaz from National Public Radio, the group believed to be responsible, Babok, is believed to be seeking a payout and threatening to release information if they do not receive it. Babok posted arrest records and internal memos on their website, but they posted no sensitive information as of Wednesday. Ransomware attacks became serious in recent years, with some hospitals and multinational corporations becoming targets of them. Rob Pritchard, founder of CybersecurityExpert.com, says that ransomware attacks are, quote, modern organized crime effectively operating multinationally and often out of jurisdictions that offer a degree of protection from international law enforcement operations, either due to inability, indifference, or corruption, end quote. Bubba gained notoriety after stealing information during attacks on companies in Germany, Hong Kong, and Sweden. Global intelligence firm CyberInt describes Babuk as an actively developed threat. The Alliance for Automotive Innovation announced support for guidelines surrounding partially automated vehicles. According to Tom Krischer and Michael Liedke from the Associated Press, guidelines were made by the Trade Association representing major automakers. Partial automation means that the driver must be paying attention to the road when the vehicle is in motion to avoid collisions and other potentially devastating accidents. Teslas set to autopilot have specifically been criticized after two men died in a Houston accident, and these vehicles on autopilot mode were also involved in multiple other crashes. In one incident, no driver was found in the car, only two passengers. Most automakers move to using a camera to ensure that drivers remain engaged while the wheel, but Tesla chooses to use a hand grip sensor instead. Jason Levine, the executive director of the Center for Auto Safety, says the manufacturers push for voluntary standards rather than mandatory government standards for self-driving vehicles creates issues. I'm Coda Babcock, and that's all for tech news. Now for weird news with Ivy Winfrey. Hello, my name is Ivy Winfrey, and you're listening to 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. Sometimes things need to be a little bit weird, so here's a few of the weirdest stories I've found from around the world today. The Supreme Court is dealing with the First Amendment rights of school children after a high school student was punished by her school for posting a profanity-laden Snapchat. According to Arian DeVogue at CNN, Brandy Levi, who was 14 at the time of the incident, which took place in 2017, posted a Snapchat filled with curse words criticizing her school and its sports program after learning she had not received a position on her school's varsity cheerleading team, despite being on the junior high varsity team. When school officials learned of the outburst, Levy was suspended from the JV team for having violated school rules, but her lawyers sued, alleging the school had violated her freedom of speech. Levy is now 18 and a freshman at Bloomberg University. In the case, which was brought before the Supreme Court Wednesday, the justices at times seemed sympathetic to the plight of the cheerleader in the case in hand, but searched for a workable standard, especially in the age of social media, that would shape the free speech rights of some 50 million public school children, while also allow the schools to step in for speech that occurs off-campus or online that could amount to a substantial disruption of the school's mission, or an example of bullying or a threat. Several of the justices struggled with where they could draw the line if they allowed schools to discipline for speech directed at the school that occurs off-campus. Justice Stephen Breyer acknowledged that Levy used, quote, unattractive swear words, 
but he questioned whether it caused a, quote, material insubstantial disruption to the school. Chief Justice John Roberts pressed a lawyer to the, for the school about the extent of the school's ability to discipline the student's speech, saying, quote, You said that schools can't regulate political or religious speech, but also that the school can regulate speech from off-campus that is directed at the school. So what do you do with political or religious speech that is directed at the school? End quote. Justice Sonia Sotomayor, meanwhile, pressed Le Levy's uh, attorney on how schools could defend against threats or bullying, asking if the school would be powerless. David Cole, an American Civil Liberties Union lawyer for Levy, says that his client was merely expressing frustration with a four-letter word to her friends outside the school on a weekend. She wasn't sending a threat or attempting to bully another student. Levy's case has drawn an array of support, including from Mary Beth and John Tinker, who won a landmark school speech case in 1969 that allowed them to wear a black armband on campus to protest the Vietnam War. Back in 1969, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of the Tinkers, but the justices also took into consideration the special characteristics of a school environment and said that public school officials could regulate speech that would, quote, materially and substantially interfere with the requirements of appropriate discipline in the operation of the school. But that decision concerned speech in the school environment. The justices will now have to decide whether the case should be expanded to apply the student speech that occurs off campus. An Irish county has begun testing the DNA of dog poop to identify owners who don't clean up after their pets. According to Latrine County Times, the Latrine County Animal Warden will take samples of dog waste in areas with high levels of waste and, using DNA, match the samples with saliva samples taken from dogs in the same area. People neglecting to pick up after their pets has become an issue that the county has been attempting to solve for years now. In 2018, the Latrim Observer found that 53% of locals believed that unmanaged dog leavings was one of the largest issues facing their community. Section 22 of the Litter Pollution Act of 1997 in Ireland states that dog owners have to clean up after their dog if it fouls in public places, for example, public roads and footpaths, housing estates, and recreational areas. Owners who fail to do this are guilty of an offense and can be fined if their dog's waste is not cleaned up. An on-the-spot fine of 150 euros, or about 191 US dollars, can be issued for not cleaning up after your dog in a public place, with a maximum fine of up to 3,000 euros, or about 3,600 US dollars, if convicted in the district court. Dog owners will be asked to cooperate with the warden in allowing a sample of saliva to be taken from their dog. Dog owners who fail to comply will be issued with a statutory notice under the Animal Health and Welfare Act, which compels the owner to allow a saliva sample to be taken from their dog. Failure to comply with this notice in not allowing the sample to be taken results in a fine or prosecution. Dog owners who allow the animal warden to take voluntary samples and where DNA match is confirmed will not be issued with a fine for a first-time offense. However, a fine may be issued for subsequent offenses. A Russian man who is trapped in a Chinese reality TV show has finally been voted out after three months of self-sabotage. According to Helen Davidson of The Guardian, Vladislav Ivanov, a 27-year-old part-time model from Vladivostok, Russia, was working on the boy band competition show Pro Produce Camp 2021 as a translator when producers reportedly noticed his good looks and asked him to sign up as a contestant. Ivanov says that he had been asked, quote, 
if I'd like to try a new life, and he agreed, but quickly came to regret the decision. Unable to leave on his own without breaching his contract and paying a fine, he instead begged viewers to send him home and deliberately po performed poorly in the hopes of being voted off. The show's concept, which originated in Korea, pits young performers against each other to train and eventually form an 11-member international boy band, chosen by a voting public. Ivanov and his fellow contestants were sequestered in dorm rooms on Hainan Island, and their phones reportedly confiscated. Using the stage name Lelouch, Ivanov told viewers, quote, don't love me, you'll get no results, end quote, and repeatedly pleaded with people not to vote for him. His first song was a half-hearted Russian rap and start contracts to the high pop of his competitors. Quote, please don't make me go to the finals, I'm tired, end quote, he said in a later episode. I hope the judges won't support me. While others want to get an A, I want to get an F, as it stands for freedom. His pleas went unanswered, however, and he was propelled through three months of competition in ten episodes, plus supplemental digital content. A fan base which had taken to his grumpy anti-celebrity persona urged each other to vote and get uh, and let him 996 in reference to China's digital industry culture of chronic overwork, 9am to 9pm, six days a week. Others called him the most miserable wage slave and celebrated him as an icon of Sang culture, a Chinese millennial concept of having a defeatist attitude towards life. After making it to the final, Ivanov grumpily ate a lemon on camera and said he hoped people would not support him again. I'm not kidding, he said in a deadpan tone. He was eventually voted out in the final episode, which aired on Saturday. That's all the weird news I have for today. My name is Avi Winfrey, and you're listening to 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. This is the Rocky Mountain Review. And now, for the weather. Today we saw mostly sunny skies with a high of 70 and a low of 46, with some minor winds in Fort Collins. Friday, temperatures raised to a high of 79 and a low of 51, with 10 mile per hour winds and little to no clouds. Saturday continues to warm up to a high of 82 and a low of 52, with 9 mile per hour winds, partly cloudy skies, and about the same winds as Friday. Sunday, temperatures cool down to a high of 66 and a low of 44 with scattered thunderstorms and similar wind speeds as the past two days. Monday, those rain showers will continue in Fort Collins with a high of 52 and a low of 39, and Tuesday dries up a bit with partly cloudy skies and a high of 62 with a low of 40. And for Wednesday, you'll have to tune in to next Tuesday's episode of the Rocky Mountain Review from 4 to 5 p.m., only on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. Information comes from the Weather Channel. And that's all for today. We just wanted to thank Damien Castile for our amazing theme music that's playing right now. 
We'd like to thank our guests today, as well as Thomas Taylor, Asher Corrin, Stephanie Keel, Hannah Copeland, Addison Lambert, Elliot Hutchinson, Matt Guzmarati, Lindsay Johnson, Sam Benefe, Maddie Erskine, Samuel Bailey, Jonathan Gillum, Ben Kruger, Ben Haney, Dixon Lawson, Peter Walk, Taylor Sandal, and the rest of the staff here at KCSU and Rocky Mountain Student Media. We couldn't do this without you. And I'd like to thank you, Coda. And I'd like to thank you, Ivy. And finally, we couldn't do this without you, dear listener. Thank you. And with that, we'll see you next time. <laughs>